It's Randy Holsey here with Backstage Pass Radio. My guest today is considered one of the best rock vocalists on the planet, and his guitar playing is right up there with the vocal abilities. He is a revered singer-songwriter and guitarist and has sold over 10 million records worldwide. His band is Grammy-nominated, and he's been rocking the stages worldwide for the last 35-plus years. You guys don't go anywhere. I will jump into a chat with the one and only Michael Sweet of Striper when we come back. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Michael Sweet, how are you, brothers? Good to see you. Man, I'm good. That that intro you gave, you know, it built me up quite a bit. <laughs> and you, you see me now, and you look at me. I look like uh, the Michelin Man here, uh, the pirate version of the Michelin Man. It's like, you know, I, I, I don't look like how you made me sound. <laughs> you can be a figment in people's imaginations, I guess, is how this is going to work out. Well, to, oh, to say it's... Uh, it. to I'm, in my, I'm in my riding mode. I throw a ski cap on a t-shirt a warm jacket and you know i don't i don't have to look fancy for anybody i've been writing for the past few days so you're getting you're getting me in my in my writing mode i get i get what i get and i don't pitch a fit right (laughs) exactly i was gonna ask you i guess since you you jumped into that that writing uh story there do you do you normally have certain times of day where you just sit down and say I'm going to dedicate two hours to writing or four hours to writing, or does it just have to be a mood thing for you? It's not so much a mood thing for me. I have everything scheduled out and on the calendar. So literally it'll say, you know, Monday through Friday, writing, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Unless something happens, it keeps me from doing that. And I like to get here at this new place. I don't like to be here too late. It's not here in this office, but down in the basement. My studio is in a vault in a basement of an old building from the 17 or early 1800s. And it's not that I'm afraid, you know, I ain't afraid of no ghosts, as the Ghostbusters say, you know. Mm-hmm. But I still don't like being down there at midnight by myself and the only one in this big, giant, old building. Correct. Um, it just, it just, it's not my thing. So I get here usually by, you know, 10 a.m., and I'm usually out of here by 6, 7 p.m. And I just write, man. I I, I have my computer, my guitar, my drum machine. I program. I start with the riff, and then I program the groove to the riff that makes it feel right, and then I just run from there, start piecing it all together and arranging. And usually within about, you know, two to four hours, I've got a song structured start to finish. And – no lyrics, okay. just, you know, rough melody and uh, the pr- a pretty good arrangement. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you normally write around a melody, like the melody is the first thing for you or your hook. And then you, the, the words just come to you kind of after the, after the fact, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Usually what happens with me is I have the riff and then I'll start humming a melody over that riff. Mm-hmm. And that nine times out of 10, that winds up being the melody. 
you know, like the, the melody I sing on the record. And then sometimes, maybe five times out of ten, I'll actually start singing a lyric that winds up being the lyric. Okay. You know, it's really weird. Something just pops into my head, and I start singing it and getting the flow for the uh, the actual, uh, you know, feel of the of the vocal itself against the guitar rhythm mm-hmm. or the drum rhythm. And uh, it, it, it's really weird how it works. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange thing. And people don't understand how that works with me. They say, what? We don't really understand that. But it's just, it's how I write. I never write lyrics first. I always write lyrics last. Um, uh, but I have an idea of the lyric, lyrical content in my head as I'm writing the music, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Does the lyrical portion or being a lyricist come easy for you or has it been a struggle? Um, is it a struggle or how, how do you feel about that? Like some people well, can just sit down and pen words. things and some people yeah. just like fight for things to think about or like it just doesn't come to them. And you might go through a patch of that sometime like writer's block or something like that. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I go through writer's block, you know, no doubt. I mean, I really went through writer's block years ago, you know, back in the nineties, there were times when I just, I'd try to work on a song for a week and not be able to really take it anywhere. To me, that's writer's block for me. Lately, the past 15 years or so, when I start working on a song, I finish that song within two to four hours. And it's been like that with every song. I haven't experienced the writer's block in you know, the past 15 years or so. Now I can't explain that. I don't really have the answers for that. It's just something going on in my mind and the way I structure songs and stuff. Uh, but lyrics were always more of a problem for me. And the reason why is because everybody knows what we sing about. Sure. And there's no, only so many ways you can sing about that yep. without it starting to feel repetitive or stale or, you know, just Correct. the same old, same old. So that's the hard part is trying to deliver the message that we have in new ways. Sure. In interesting ways. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And once you write, you know, however many albums you have, 10, 15 records or whatever that total amount comes to, you're right. I mean, I guess it, I could see where it's like, wait, didn't I write about this in the third album? Or <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's crazy, man. It is really crazy. And yeah, I mean, Striper, this is going to be Striper's 14th album. And I'm going to be releasing a solo album next year. It'll be my 11th. And actually, if you count Reborn, the, in my version of it, you you that I released somewhat recently, it'd be the 12th. And then I, I already started on another album with another guy, C.J. Grimmark, uh, uh, who plays in a band called Narnia, a phenomenal guitar player. And, and that album's coming together, and that'll come out. So it, I'll be at 13 solo albums, you know? I'm right there with Striper. So you add them all up, it's it's like I'm I'm pushing, you know, I'm getting up to that 30 mark. There are guys out there, you know, guys like Jeff Scott Soto and George Lynch, they probably have 100 albums they've released. Um, I'm not that kind of a guy. I mean, I could do that if I wanted to. But I don't want it. Does 30, that make sense? Yeah, certainly it does. Well, I was going to say 30 records. And I mean, what, you're only 31 years old. I mean, that's a lot of records, Michael. <laughs> oh, man. I wish I was 31. Right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I wish I was 31. Yeah, but, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that I could spend every day writing and recording. And if I did, I'd probably have, you know, a couple hundred albums. Yeah. Now. 
Well, it's nice. And that- there are guys that do that, but I choose to, I like to make an album, you know, spend a couple months doing it and then go tour and take a couple months off from recording. I, I, and I like to just kind of counter it with other things because otherwise it can become burnout very it just you're spinning your wheels and it just kind of all starts to map mush together and sound the same and you know i don't i try not to do that yep i get it that makes perfect sense and and real quick before i go much further i wanted to give a quick shout out to adam hamilton for connecting you and i so thanks to to hammy for for putting that together what a great guy adam is oh man dude yeah I haven't even got to hang out with Adam you know, really? and break bread. No, I haven't got to eat and hang out with him in that way. It's just been all via email and text. But, man, what a sweetheart. What a great guy. Uh, become one of my favorite people on the planet, you know. And he's such a cool dude, talented guy, amazing. I mean, he's working with guys, people like Ann Margaret. and yeah. I mean, it's like, what? The list wow. goes on and on and on. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got some biggies out there. You know, Bill Shatner. I mean, I'm <laughs> – it's nuts. Yeah. Well, you Shatner and then, and then LA guns and you know, his range is quite broad. It's yep. really cool. Absolutely. Well, he, he, he's working on some drum parts for uh, an interview that I just did uh, with Michael Lane Hildebrandt up in Dallas. I just came back from Dallas doing a show with him. Yeah. And it's funny, all these, all, all you guys or these guys are, you know, we're all, it's like second, third degree networking. We're all connected in, yeah. a, in, in different ways. And uh, you know, some sure. of these guys that I'm meeting on the show uh, and I'm sure that I'll feel the same about you. It's like, it's like kindred spirits. It's, it's like, You've, you've known these people forever. Like when you yeah. just get to talking to people, it's really cool how it all works out. But today you, you said that Massachusetts is home base for you uh, these days, correct? It has been since 1995. So, you know, I'm, I'm going on to that 30 year mark, man. Wow. Um, coming up 2025 would be 30 years. And, you know, I, I'm almost to that point where I've been here as long as I was in California. I was born and raised in California. And I left California in 1995, so I was 32. So by the time I, we hit, uh, you know, 2027, I'll have been here as long as I was in California, which is just crazy. That's, uh, that's interesting to think about it that way. Now, what, what, what took you to the East Coast? You went from one coast to the other. Was it a family thing that, that took you out yeah. to, the, to the East Coast? Okay. And then, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We wanted to raise our kids in a different area. You know, we were living in Fullerton, California, and there were a lot of like gangs popping up. Mm-hmm. Fullerton's a really nice, or at least it was a really nice area. And then we moved there and we were in a really uh, nice, uh, quiet neighborhood, no crime. Then all of a sudden these Asian gangs started popping up everywhere. Wow. And uh, specifically Asian, you know, these hardcore Asian gangs and uh, all sorts of crime was going on in that area and and break-ins and all sorts of things. And we just thought, wow, this isn't cool. So we sold our house and we moved. We just decided to get out of that area and go to a safer place. And we came here to Massachusetts um, and been, I've been here ever since. So it's really cool how that worked out. And, and you or your wife, you had, did you have family that was living out on the East coast? Is that kind of like, because most people, 
would move from, say, Fullerton to another place in California versus saying, right. well, let's just move 4,000 miles away, right? Like, I didn't know if it was yeah. a family thing that took you out there. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah my, gotcha. wife the, my wife at the time, Kyle, who, you know, most people are familiar with the story and aware of the fact that she, Kyle passed um, back in 2009. And we came here because she was born here, born and raised okay. here. And we had family here. So, yes, of course. We we figured Massachusetts because, hey, we've got family there. We've got friends there. Let's go there. And I had visited many times, and I loved it. I fell in love with it. Now, I did have to get used to the cold. I'm yeah. still getting used to the cold, <laughs> I have to admit. Yeah. Well, do you ever get – or do you ever get used to the cold? It's like being in Houston saying, I think I'm used to the heat. No, you're not. It's hot, and it's it's miserable in August. So oh, yeah. even being pretty much a native Houstonian, you, you just don't, you try to yeah. acclimate, you just acclimate the best you can is what you do. You, you do. And you smarten up. Like I've learned how to dress for the cold. You sure. know, you, it, it, people that come here, friends of mine that come here and they say, Oh, I'm freezing. I'll say, well, did you layer up? You know, exactly. no. and they just have a t-shirt and a jacket on. Yes. And I said, it's all about layering up. If you put another long sleeve shirt and another hoodie and then the jacket, you'll be toasty. And it's Correct. all about just layering up and being smart. And if you can do that, man, it's not too bad. No. You, know, you, you, you get used to it. Now, when it's below zero and it's that brutally cold, like unseasonably cold temperatures, I can never get used to that. <laughs> never. I was telling somebody not too long ago that I was up in Minot, North Dakota for, for my full-time job and when I was up there I went in January and I knew it was going to be cold I just didn't know how cold and it got down to negative 41 while I was there and let's just say let's just say the polar bears were pissed off having to live in Minot and that kind of cold like it was it was brutal um I, I can't see how you live in that six months out of the year just I amazing you, I don't understand I, I say this to my wife all the time and she says, well, it's been like that from the beginning of time. And I say, I know. I don't know how animals survive. Isn't it weird? Outside, in, even, even just below freezing, okay? You, you gotta, they got to sleep out in that, right? Yes. But how do they survive when it's 30 and 40 below zero? It, it seems like nothing would be able to survive. You would think, and then we as humans go outside and it's 50 degrees and we fall completely to pieces because it's cold outside, right? And they're living in that, sleeping in that. And you know the body temperature reduces at night when you're sleeping anyway, probably five degrees or whatever it is, right? I'm not a doctor, but you you get colder at night because you're at rest. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting thought. What about? It blows my mind. It's all that stuff, all those things that make you go, hmm, as Arsenio used to say. But Absolutely. Man, I don't understand how anything can survive in temperatures like that. That's <laughs> insane. That blows my mind. And then the same goes the, uh, the the extreme opposite way, and that is in, you know, areas like Death Valley, you know, oh, when it gets 120 degrees. and 5 yeah. degrees. How, how, do, how do things survive in yeah. that kind of and the nutty, the nutty thing about that is there's like no water there. So it's not only hot, but it's like you get dehydrated too, which I makes know. it even worse. Well, yeah. tell me, tell me where the other members of the band are. Are they, are they in the new England area as well? Or are they spread out? Where are the guys at these days? They are not spread out. Oz and Rob are in Las Vegas. 
And we always joke about, you know, they always say, oh, man, New England is so cold, the weather, the weather. And I, and I just think, well, man, Vegas. Every time I go to Vegas, it's like 115 or 20 degrees. <laughs> right. And it's, it feels like an oven, you know. You yep. go, you walk out there, it feels like an oven. But uh, And then Perry, Perry is in his hometown, which is Myrtle Beach. So okay. he was raised in that area, and he's back there. He was living in Nashville for a while. Now he's in Myrtle Beach. Okay. Interesting. Now, take take me back a little and talk to me about influences as a teenage kid growing up. Who were you into? Who were you listening to? And then fast forward that thought a little and maybe share with the listeners who maybe you're vibing with today, like what, what music out there and, and maybe you don't listen to music. I mean, that's certainly possible. And I think people go through those spells, but who was it when you were a teenager who shaped you? And then maybe who you vibing with these days? Well, when I was growing up starting from the time I was just a, a small young kid, uh, my dad had a very eclectic uh, music musical taste and in, in, in collection. Uh, and he would listen to everything from uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Nelvis Presley, okay, to uh, he started getting into bands like, you know, uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. And then he also would listen to on occasion and actually liked it, you know, bands like Black Sabbath. Now that's quite a wide that's a range, range. yeah. And then you sprinkle in there in between, and he wrote country music, but country music. So he loved country music, too. And my dad loved it all, and my mom as well. And it, it's I grew up around that, like learning how to appreciate all types of music, and I did. Absolutely. You know, I used to listen to, when I was younger, I loved Al Green. Okay. I loved the Bee Gees. Mm. Uh, I loved... Uh, you know, like I said, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I love Chuck Berry. I loved, and then I started getting, as I got a little older, I started getting into Bad Company. They became one of my first favorite rock bands. Fog Hat and Bad Company were two of my favorites wow. uh, back then. And then I started transitioning into heavier stuff. Van Halen, obviously, when they came out, Priest, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Dio, started getting into all that stuff as a guitar player, Ozzy Osbourne. Um, and, uh, but man, I still love popping in an Al Green song and, you know, and a BG song. And, and I mean, I just, I appreciate just good vocals, good melodies, yeah. good songs. Who could, I mean, is there anybody on the planet that, that harmonizes better than the brothers Gibb? I mean, I, I, I mean, the most underrated songwriters ever, I think. Um, anybody that knows me, I absolutely love the BGS. You know, I think they get a bad rap. It was that whole disco thing, but these are the songwriters, songwriters, right? I mean, these yeah. guys are on another planet. I think personally, they are on another planet, and even their disco songs were amazing songs. Absolutely, you know. More than a woman, you know, you just go on and on, and just such incredibly well written songs, correct? Uh, 
disco or not. Who cares if Absolutely. it's disco? I, I, I mean, that's the mentality. It's so hard for me to understand when people just write it off because it's got that label on it. Absolutely, yes. Well, I've, still I've, some great songs. Yep, and I said, I said, I've said this before about the BGS, but then I said it. I barked it out again last night as I was watching uh, the uh, an Eagles concert, in which I don't watch TV hardly at all anymore because I just don't have time to do that. But my comment was, and and again, I've said it with the BGS a hundred times. Did these guys ever write a bad song? Just watching this concert of the Eagles, it was just hit after hit after hit. It's like, do, do, do y'all ever sprinkle in like a half crappy song? Like is every one of them like a chart topping song? Like it's amazing that there's some that can write great songs. And then there's others like, you know, your Bee Gees and the Eagles that are just on in a solar system all by themselves. It seems well, like, yeah. Cause like you said, every song, every song is the hit. You know, uh, and and like them or not, the, the Beatles, same thing. They were just writing machines. You know? Absolutely. Uh, and, and there's a, a few other bands out there that you could you could say that about. Uh, I mean, one band in particular that I I was able to be a small part of in their first album was like that. There wasn't a bad song on the album, mm-hmm. and that was Boston. Absolutely. You know, just phenomenal songs and. It starts there. If you don't have that foundation to build your house upon, you're just you're just wasting your time. That's right. You have to have a great song. If you don't, you're in trouble. You can have the best performances, the best singer, the best guitar player, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't because the song's just a pile of garbage, yep. you know. And it, it, how many times have we all heard that and experienced that? And I think that's what happens with a lot of new albums that come out lately. Um, and I don't say all. I say they maybe even a lot stretching it, but definitely a pretty good amount, at least in my opinion. Uh, great players, great singers, just phenomenal musicianship. But then I, I listen to the album. The album gets sent to me, and I listen to it the whole thing through. And I'm the next day. I'm not humming one melody. Sure. It's not sticking. One, yeah. It, 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 there's no hook. There's yeah. no, there's nothing that, and that's the thing about the music from the seventies, man. Oh, it was just all about. It was magical. Melodies. Yes. Killer. Well, Killer. I, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole with music about the seventies because that, like I say, 1978 was my year. I mean, that was the year that shaped me as a musician playing all the yeah. shows that I play every year, the songs that I choose to play in my shows. It, yeah. it was just a, it was, and, and I think we're pretty close to the same age. And that was just, to me, that's when they had real musicians, guys that actually played their instruments. They harmonized together. There wasn't all of this, this auto tuning magic that, no. you, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, okay. these were the musicians, musician back in the day, I think just I my opinion. You're, you're, you're right, man. And, Look, at, I'm guilty of, unfortunately, Pro Tools has kind of reshaped, you know, music in the future and everything. Mm-hmm. When you have those tools, you use them. Um, I try not to, though. And what I mean by that is in the old days, when we were tracking in 83 or 84 or 85, we would, you know, we knew our parts. We were much more well-rehearsed. 
we'd play a solo and maybe track it two or three times and we'd have it. Nowadays, because of Pro Tools, we can sit there and track it, track it, track it, and do it 30 or 40 times and then piece together little sections of each solo sure. to create a comped master solo. And I'm just thinking, man, you know, I miss the old days. I yep. miss just because you start to sterilize it and lose the soul yeah. of whatever it is you're tracking. Well, and there's pros and cons and all of that, right? I mean, it's, it, yeah. isn't it amazing and a blessing that we have such tools today that they didn't have 40 years ago, you know, we're able yeah. to do bigger and better things, but you're right. It right. takes away some of the human element to the music sometimes. And then the other part of that is, how difficult now is it for you to go try to reproduce that in a live show, right? Because it's so fabricated in the studio. People go to your show and say, well, gee, I really love the Striper album. It was amazing. But, man, they don't sound anything like they in live, like, like the record. And I think people want to hear live what they hear on the records. That's just oh, our humanness, true. right? That's our humanness. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's... It, a lot of bands do overdo it. We're one band that has on occasion overdone it with production. I mean, you know, where you go, you just go all out. Sure. You do so much that it's hard to pull off live, you know? And one of the first bands that did that, that popped into my head, just so happens to, the song came out in the seventies and that's Queen, you know? Yeah. Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Yep. I mean, they couldn't pull it off live, so they used tapes. They were one of the first bands to use tracks, you know? Yep. Uh, and, and I get it that's the only way they could have pulled it off to make it sound like it sounded on, on the record. But I agree. I think it's important. And that's something we're really focusing on with this new album. I said to the guys, I'm trying to keep everything really straight ahead so we can play all these songs live instead of, well, we can play those four, but we can't play those five Correct. because they're just too hard to pull off. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yep. Absolutely. Uh, we're trying to keep it real. And, and, and so we can go out as a four piece and make it sound like the record and do it live. Yep. Well, that's a great segue. Uh, you, you spoke about four piece over 30 years ago, give or take probably, um, a, a three piece band called rocks regime morphed into what we know as striper today. What drove you guys to go from three piece to four piece and then ultimately wind up changing the name to striper? Well, I mean, I tell you, uh, that's a really good question. And I think what it was is we, I was listening personally to a lot of bands that had dual guitars. And I kind of missed that in, in our music back then. As a trio, you could accomplish dual guitars, you know. It was, it was impossible. Bands like Thin Lizzy, you know, I love Thin Lizzy. Uh, and I just just love the harmonies and love the sound of two guitars. So, uh, and then also I came out of uh, a period where vocals really affected me. We were talking about the Bee Gees. Anything with really good harmonizing, I was drawn to instantaneously. Queen, the Bee Gees, the Beach Boys, the Beatles, anything that had the Eagles, obviously, you know, had those amazing harmonies. I was really drawn to that. So obviously bringing in someone that played guitar and sang so we could have that the harmonization yep. in, in, in the guitars and the vocals was something that was really important. But I got to say, we had fun being a trio too. Mm -hmm. That was kind of cool. Yeah. There's something to be said for that too. And um, 
I, I, I had a blast doing that, man. I got used to, I cut my teeth in clubs those days as a trio and learning how to play and sing at the same time. Yeah. So that's, that's why I do it to this day, you know? Well, you probably have to be a little more on your A game when you're the only guitarist and you're the only singer. You, you, you don't have a guy like Oz to kind of fill the gap, so to speak, right? And allow you to, to catch your breath or to whatever the case may be, right? Uh, you're a little more out there for everybody to hear and see. It's much like me as a solo acoustic artist. I play in a duo. I have a lead guitarist, but it's all acoustic. And man, when you put an acoustic guitar in front of, you know, in your hand and you sit in front of a house of a couple of two or 300 people, they hear all the mistakes. There's no hiding behind loud amps and all of this stuff, right? You're exposed for the whole world to see. So you get it from being three piece versus four piece, right? It's so true. Yeah, so true. And I enjoy doing that too, the acoustic thing. I'll go out by myself and do an acoustic thing. And man, sometimes my back... Is the sweat is just pouring down my back sure. because you're so under the microscope. Yes. You yep. know, any little voice crack, any little mistake, they're going to hear it. Absolutely, it's, they will. Like I said, there's something to be said for that, though, that's kind of cool. Uh, it's live. It's live as it gets. Yep. Uh, but, man, I, you know, I, I love playing and singing, uh, plugging in, turning up, playing and singing a week. We went to Australia a few years ago. Oz wasn't able to make it, and we did it as a trio again. That was the first time ever since the early 80s that we were a trio. And it brought back a lot of those memories of me sure. having to figure out, because you gotta, you got to learn how to play that way. You know, how to hit a chord instead of a lead at this point in yes. time and to transition into that segment and that, it's really interesting. It's a whole different mentality. Well, yeah, because you know? you're so used to playing your part, right? And exactly. not having to worry about Oz's part. Now you've got to incorporate two parts into one, and it's something exactly. you're not used to doing. It, it was really, it was very interesting. And even on some of the songs, I didn't even play Oz's parts because I, I, I didn't have time to learn them, you know. But we went, we did it, and I don't know how, but we we pulled it off and it, it was really weird because I expected like really negative reviews um, of the shows in Australia and the reviews were really good. Uh, despite the fact that we were just a tricky. Sure. It was really interesting. Man. Yeah. It was wild. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you how they, how they resonated with the people that attended the shows and uh, you answered the question. I think that it, it went over really well. Sounds like. Well, I mean, there was a there was a certain rawness to it. Okay, if that makes any sense. And I Absol- think the fans yeah. the fans like that, and it made for a different setting and a different feel and a different show. And that's what everyone talked about. Like I've seen you five times, and man, this was really interesting in a really cool way. I really like you know that kind of thing. Absolutely. Now, Striper went on to write, record, and produce charting songs over the years songs like honesty uh honestly sorry uh which climbed i think to probably 23 22 23 yeah. on the billboard charts and then you also had some like meg- mega popular songs like calling on you and always there for you but striper also uh you, you guys had an album to hell with the devil 
And I think that was touted by some as maybe one of the best Christian rock records of all time. Yeah. Well, is that is that album for you guys? Do you think that that was the turning point for Striper? Or did you feel like there was another album where you, you kind of you said, you know, we've arrived? Was that the album for you when you kind of felt like that? I mean, for me, it felt more like that album would have been Soldiers Under Command. The, okay, from '85. Okay, it wasn't. It wasn't so much about the, the sales and the popularity of the album per se, you know, because Tell the Devil sold much more and, you know, broke ground, obviously. But Soldiers felt more like, uh, you know, we we transitioned into what we should have been uh, and what we were not. Because we worked with the, the first our first world-renowned producer, Michael Wagner. We worked in a world-renowned studio, Amigo Studios, where Van Halen recorded. We were looking at all the plaques on the walls of Van Halen. We were just in awe. Yeah. You know? Because uh, there are, there are, there are band, man, Van Halen, you know, we, we all grew up on them. And we all love them. Um, and it just felt like, wow, this is it. Yeah. This is the one. More so with soldiers for me than to hell. But to hell felt that the same way too. I think what happened with us with to hell is when we mixed to hell with the devil, that song in particular, and we went out to the car and popped in yes, a cassette, cranked it up, and sat back and listened. We looked at each other and said, Wow. This is good. We got we got something here. Yeah. This is something special. Yeah. We felt it and we knew it. Good. And how hard how hard or how stressful is it to to follow up from say the success of to hell or soldiers you know those were great albums for you guys like what is that pressure like to say you know we've got to we've got to do just 2% better on this next one was it was it tough was it stressful for you guys at that time yeah it's hard it is definitely hard cuz you're not only getting the pressure from yourself you're getting the pressure from some fans, you know, and you're getting the pressure from uh, the label and the agent and, the, you know, all the people working the band and working the album that you just broke ground with. So you got to outdo that. And that's the mentality. It was especially stressful back then because there wasn't as much time to do it. Okay. You know, albums were turned out once every year yeah. versus every, every two or three years. So we'd make an album spend a couple months on it, like to hell with the devil, for example, a couple months. And then literally right after we were done, we'd get on a tour bus and go tour. And we would tour for six, seven, eight months versus now six or seven or eight weeks. If that, and then after, right after you're done touring, you go home for a week and, and have time to pee and, and eat a meal. Yeah. And you're back in the studio. Absolutely. And that's just the way it was. Uh, and, you know, I kind of like that. I work well under pressure. Do you? I, thank God. Well, yeah, you always going to say that's a good quality to have in your business, I would think. Well, you kind of have to have it. But I'll tell you, some people don't. And I've seen it firsthand where they buckle and they, they can't deal with it. Uh, now, I've, I've, I've buckled at times, too, and I have too much on my plate. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't do this, you know. Yeah. We all go through that. But I can, when it comes to music, 
I'm one of those guys where, you know, somehow, some way, miraculously, I get it done. And, yeah. and I can, I turn on when, once I start writing, there's something clicks in my mind. And it's like the floodgates open and I'm able to focus and boom, just get it done. Yeah. So unless I have, you know, emergency situations like this. Sure. Uh, this, this, you know altered my whole year you know it's amazing how not my whole year but when this happened it set back three different projects everything just changed yes in an instant so you know if something like that happens that's unfortunate but man i I, i'm able to always somehow get it done i'm blessed with all the music i've been a part of and hopefully there's a lot more to come and uh I'm going to keep getting it done, hopefully. Yeah, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole with with the medical piece there, but you 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 alluded to it. But for the listeners, they're not they don't see us on the video like like I could see you pointing to your eye. The it was correct me if I'm wrong. Was it a detached retina that was the issue, or what was the deal? Because I think again for the listeners, Michael has a patch on his eye for those that haven't seen this. So I wanted to kind of bring you up to speed on what he was talking about there with the, with the whole eye thing, right? Yes. Yes. Well, uh, it's a, it was a detached retina. Uh, I got hit in the head when I was young and every time I'd go to the eye doctor, they would always say, you need to keep a, a no pun intended. You need to keep an eye on that <laughs> because, uh, you have a partially detached retina. And I never really thought about it. No one ever suggested laser surgery or, anything like that. And I'd go to the check and get checked up again. And they tell me the same thing. Oh, wow. You know, you, you need to just keep tabs on that right there. You know, it, it shouldn't be a problem, but just be careful. And this went on my whole life. Uh, now I'm nearsighted. So if you're nearsighted, I just discovered this and learned this, uh, you're more prone to retinal detachment. Okay. Because your eyes are shaped differently, and they actually stretch out a little bit more, and your retina can detach more easily if you're nearsighted. I'm nearsighted. Um, and it's hereditary. I have thinning of the retinas, so I've got all these things going on, and sure enough, I'm 58 years old, and I was at Disney World, and I stepped off the curve, and just like a light switch going on, my, my vision went just like that. Like the eye, just, eye. It just it just blacked out, like you couldn't see anything out of it? It, it wasn't blacked out. It was like a curtain of gray uh, gel over my eye with uh, thousands and thousands of little black speckled dots. Wow. In, in an instant. That, like had, that. that had to have been extremely scary for you. Like you had no idea what was going on there at it the was, time, it right? Was scary. Yeah. yeah. I said to my wife, I said, uh, okay, uh, my eye, I can't see out of my eye. Holy cow. And she said, what do you mean? What do you mean? And, and what happened was we were in Florida, kind of stuck down there. I tried to get in to see an eye doctor, and I have Blue Cross HMO, so I wasn't able to do that out of state, okay? So it, it took forever to get a referral, and I wound up just coming home and dealing with it here. Mm-hmm. But from that time down there to, to the time I got home, it was about a week. And those speckles went away. I found out later that was fluid in my eye that the fluid that holds my retina in place, it basically just draining out dissipated. Okay. Yeah. And that's what caused that look. And then about three days after that incident, 
I had what looked like a black half moon over my eye. All I could see were people's feet. That was it. And, and did, at this time, did you have any idea what had happened to your eye? Well, at that time, I knew what it was. Okay, okay. Yeah, because I was Googling and everything. Sure. <laughs> Self-diagnosing on the internet. Yes. Yeah, I called my eye doctor at home here, and they said, uh, it sounds like a d- detached retina. Okay. You, you, need to, you need to deal with that right when you get home. So when I got home, I went to Mass Eye and Ear and had emergency surgery, and that's exactly what it was. And they, my mine was pretty bad. They had to do everything. You know, they did a scleral buckle around my eye. It's a, like a silicone band that's sewn into my eye. It's permanent. You can't see it. Okay. But, uh, and it's just, you know, in this eye, I had this eye checked, and this left eye has two uh, retinal tears. So uh, that may happen at some time as well. You know, so it's just it's one of those things, man. I'm, sure. I, I got to deal with it. Like many people have to deal with things. I got to deal with that. Will it go back to uh – a 2020 vision. I don't know if you had 2020 before, but will it go back to normal? I guess is probably the better way to phrase the question. Here's the thing. They don't think so, but people it's ha- that's happened with some people. And, and one of my dear friends, uh, Paul Gargano with uh, metal edge, he had, he's had eye surgeries, had the same thing happen. And his vision went back to like, he's, he's a, he's a miracle basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Todd Kearns who plays for slash as well. Uh, phenomenal bass player, singer, dear friend. He had the same thing happen to him. So it's happened to a good number of people. Oddly enough. I was just, uh, I was just thinking like, let me think about this for a second. Um, I, I guess if you were to have, an issue with your eye like you've had that's the the right eye is probably the better eye for the guitarist right just by the way you look at the neck if i'm thinking that through my in my in the mind's eye real quick right oh yeah no for for sure Uh, if if it had been my left eye i'd be in serious trouble yeah you couldn't work the fretboard probably quite like you could no i'd have to literally i'd have to turn turn your head 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 a lot more oh yeah yeah that's why I was thinking and, that, yeah. And probably get, you know, a stiff neck and, <laughs> and still have trouble. And I'm having trouble even with it being this side. Yeah. I'm having trouble figuring out and judging uh, sometimes where my hands land. It's it's very, well, very odd. Well, it's, now mag- magnify that by like two or three by not having the eye that you do have. And now you've got even a bigger challenge, right? Well, so you're, you should be thankful that, uh, I guess it's that eye if, if it's, you know, f- from a playability standpoint, sure. right? No, no question. No question about it. I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful thank well, God, that, that eye. and I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to go in and we're going to record an album and I won't have my vision back in this side for a while, but you know, I, I'll be fine. I I'll get through it. Uh, hopefully by the time I track solos, I might have vision in this side. That would be a little helpful. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not worried about it, man. I mean, I, I keep telling myself it could always be worse and man, it sure can be. Absolutely. Um, it, it can always be worse. Well, you had, you had a lot of success with some charting songs from your solo work that spanned, um, I think that you said earlier it was 13, 13 records that you put out. Um, how important is it to you 
to release solo material alongside the material that you release with Striper? Do you try to keep it a one-for-one? Does that even matter to you? Hopefully my question makes sense. Well, it makes perfect sense. You know, here's the thing. It's, It's always a fine line when you do solo projects when you're in a band because it can come across as an egotistical thing. Um, it can come across as a betrayal, you know, like you're betraying the other guys in the band or you don't have respect for them. I mean, I've heard comments like this from people and I, I can kind of understand the mentality behind those comments, but at the same time, the reason why I do it is because I've got so much music in me. Yeah. I've just got music coming out of me left and right, and I want to be able to to record it and yep. and perform it and and get it out of my mind, you know, and out of my system. And this is why I do it, and I enjoy doing it. I mean, I a, more than ever before, I enjoy the process, recording and writing, and it's so much fun to me, and I love it. Uh, so that's why I do so many solo albums. Yeah, because I just I enjoy the process. Uh, it has nothing to do with ego. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It's just it's just who I am. You know, it's yeah. who I am, and and I got to get it out somehow. Do Do you feel like you enjoy the whole process more at your age now versus when you were in your twenties or thirties? Like, is it more enjoyable or is it less enjoyable now? Would you say? Well, I tell you, the process, the songwriting process and the basic track tracking process is <clears throat> more enjoyable. Okay. I, or certainly as enjoyable. Okay. I love it. The, the, the part that I don't care for as much because it's much more tedious and I'm older, so my vocal cords aren't, you know, spring chickens anymore. But it's every time I track the vocals, you know, and I do it on my own for a number of reasons. Uh, it, it saves us money. It saves us time. It saves it saves stress. Like if I'm doing a vocal in the studio, and we're paying a thousand dollars a day, and I'm not feeling it that day. That's very stressful. Sure. Right. Versus when I track at home, I don't have to. I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not feeling it, I just don't track that day. I go. I go home. I go catch a movie with my wife. I do it the next day. Sure. And uh, on nobody's dime. So um, I like doing it that way. But at the same time, I'm much harder on myself. It's much more tedious. I'm never happy with anything I sing. Who is? Even play for the whole band and they say, wow, that's the most amazing thing you sing. And I'm like, I'm sitting there hating it. Yeah. Well, we're our own worst critic. And whether it's vocals or us both being guitarist you're always after that elusive perfect tone and that elusive perfect sound that gosh dang it you never seem to ever you know it's just always right there out of your reach it seems like even though you think you've got it dialed in 99.9 percent but there's that 0.1 percent that it just could be a little better all the time right so true oh yeah how do you force it's always going to be that way and it It will i I listen back to each album once we finish it and i'll go back two months later and i'll listen and say oh dang i wish we could have done that better Uh, oh man i I wish i did that (laughs) or did this or didn't yes yep 
Hindsight is always twenty twenty, my friend. That's what they say. Yeah. That's the old adage, right? <laughs> How do you force yes. yourself out of the striper mindset to write the Michael Sweet songs? How do you how do you not make the Michael Sweet stuff sound like striper? Or do you purposely do you purposely try not do you just let it flow? Talk to me a little bit about that. I just let it flow. Okay. Like I, when I go in to write a striper album and just whatever's coming out that I like, if I'm tapping my foot and feeling it, that's what's, that's what's going on. You know, if it's real heavy, if it's got a little bit more of a pop sense, it, it, whatever, that, that's fine. And now when I do this Michael Sweet stuff, I tend to naturally, I, I want to experiment a little bit more and I feel the freedom to do that with Michael Sweet stuff because there are no real expectations. Like it, Absolutely. you striper, like we're a metal band, so we got to do this, we got to do that, you know, and if we don't, uh-oh. But with Michael Sweet, it's like, whatever. If I want to do a song that sounds a little more country, yeah, who cares? I'll yeah. do it. Yeah. There's uh, less parameters. I want to do, yeah, I mean, exactly. Or if I want to do a piano ballad, who cares? But with striper, it's like, we got to be a little bit more careful of that because, boy, we'll, we'll catch the heat. <laughs> We don't do it right. Well, you're under the microscope probably a little bit more with Striper than you are with Michael Sweet, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. For you, sure. Yes. Yeah. You had um, another project that you did with guitar master George Lynch of the band Dokken. Tell me a little bit how that project shaped up. Like, wh- where? how did this thing come to birth? Well, I mean, Serafino at Frontiers reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be a part of this super group, as he was calling it. And he had John Levin originally picked out, who plays for Dawkin. Okay, he's George's, <coughs> George's uh, I don't know what the right terminology is, but basically he took over George's place yeah. at Dawkin. Yeah. And, and he's a great player, but... but the predecessor. It sounded like Serafino was wanting to do more of a Doc and Meet Striper thing. So I said to him, I said, well, if that's what you're trying to do, why don't, why don't we just reach out to George? And he said, oh, do you know George? And I said, yeah, I do. And uh, he said, yeah, please do. And I reached out to George, emailed him, and we started talking, and George said, I'm in. It was it was pretty much cut and dry like that. That was, uh, a, that was pretty short-lived, though, wasn't the, the – um, that project a little short-lived? Maybe was there a, a record or two that came out of that project? We did two albums. Two, okay. Yeah, we did two albums, uh, and then it got kind of put on a shelf for a while. And, and the reason why, uh, unless there are other reasons unknown I'm not familiar with, is I didn't want to do a third album because I wanted it to be done a certain way in terms of quality and not rushed and thrown together. And I also felt like George and, and George can, you know, chime in anytime he wants and say whatever he wants. Uh, I'm all ears, but it just felt and seemed like George wasn't as into it okay. as I was. Meaning I would, when an album would come out, I would post about it, you know, two and three times a day for a month. And George would post about it once or twice, you know, and it just, it just didn't seem to me or feel like he was wholehearded. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. 
if you know whether that's true or false, I don't know. It just seemed that way. Well, it's a, it's a perception, and sometimes perceptions can either be really good things or they can not be as good of things, right? You know, it could yeah. go it could go either way on the balance scale of justice. Exactly. You did. So I just I felt like you know. Eh, I don't really want to do this anymore. Yeah. So I didn't do it. And then I was approached by the label to do it a new way, a different way. Um, co-producing it with this guy, uh, Alessandro, who's amazing, really amazing guy, amazing producer. And uh, it's going to be a different sounding record from the first two, but we're able to get it done within budget. Uh, and George and I are doing a third Sweet Lynch album, believe it or not. Awesome. Now, you also had a short stint with Tracy Guns and a project called Sunbomb. Did that come about kind of the same way? It did come about uh, kind of the same way, uh, but in, in the sense that it's a Frontiers project, and, you know, it kind of birthed out of this super group mentality, right? Uh, but that was really, from, from what I understand, more of a Tracy project, and almost, it almost felt like more of a solo project that he had a deal with Frontiers 4. Okay. And I think they had another vocalist who was set up to do it, and that didn't work out. And then Tracy contacted me, and that almost didn't work out. And then it did. Okay. Uh, so I obviously was a part of that album and sang on that album, and it was really fun being a part of it and singing those songs because they had a different – darker, doomier kind of vibe to them. It's yeah. kind of cool. I, uh, just to make sure I have my terminology right, you when you say super group, I'm assuming that you mean along the lines of like when, when Asia was formed and like when the damn Yankees were formed where they take a guy from this band and that band and meld them together to make that band. Yes. They refer to that. For the listeners that aren't familiar with some of the terminology, that's what we're talking about as it relates to supergroup, is that correct, Michael? Absolutely. You and I are on the same page. Okay, I just want to make sure that we clarified that for the listeners yeah, that aren't in bands. And what- the only difference with us, with names like Michael Sweet and all the other guys that I do these supergroups with, is we're not as super as some of those other guys. <laughs> so, maybe, so maybe we're mini supergroups. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, is this where... It, is this where you ran into Adam Hamilton through the whole Tracy Guns thing, or where, where did where did the uh, connection with uh, Adam come about for you? That's exactly right. Yeah, I, that's how I uh, got to know Adam again, just through email and text messages. Okay, uh, I think we might have had one or two phone conversations, you know. Uh, but basically, he drummed on, and from what I understand, I know he mixed it, and he might have produced it, or co-produced it, uh, the Sunbomb album. Okay. And, and as I was sending in my vocals and stuff, I was dealing with Adam, you know, and uh, and he was uh, gracious through everything, man, and such a professional, such a sweetheart. And it, the album, considering how it was done and put together, it really turned out great. Yeah. Because a lot of that album was done at home. I think Tracy tracked his guitars at home. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, big studios involved and in, okay. in, in, in things like that, you know. So I know it wasn't a real high budget album as well, but man, like I said, all things considered, it really turned out great. It has a really cool vibe to it and a great sound to it. That's really cool. And I, I think my my show with Adam 
has been recorded and I think that drops in January. So I'm looking forward to that, that one dropping. And, uh, I also released one not too long ago with, um, Mark Knight from bang tango who worked pretty closely with, with Adam Hamilton as well. So there's a big Adam Hamilton connection, you know, going on with a lot of the musicians and, and he is, he's a, He's a wonderful guy. Um, he is, man. He's a great guy. Such a sweetheart. One of the best guys in the business, yep, I think. Yep. I'm sure he'll appreciate hearing that. Now, back in 2007, you got a phone call uh, from someone very special after the passing of legendary singer Brad Delp of the rock band Boston. Tell the listeners about this call that you got. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, my manager got a call. Okay. I, I Brad Dell passed and I had written something uh, that went online about what he meant to me. And Kim Scholes, who is Tom Scholes wife, uh, apparently found it online, read it online. I believe Tom read it. And they reached out to my management, Dave Rose, about having me as a guest at what was supposed to be their last Boston show. And they invited me out to come and sing a song. And the original song, the first song they wanted me to sing, or the one song, was a song called Higher Power. I don't know if you've even heard that. Um, But it's a B-side, you know, on one of their albums. And I think they were just kind of picking something that was fitting for Michael Sweet, you know, okay. uh, higher power, the lyric. And, and okay. Whatnot. I'll follow you. And they had invited Mickey Thomas, Sammy Hagar, uh, and Wilson, a bunch of different singers and artists. And some of these people weren't able to make it. So it wound up being, I was asked to sing more songs, which was more than a feeling rock and roll band, uh, peace of mind. Okay. And uh, I learned all the guitar parts. I walked in and we rehearsed and did guitar first. And Tom was really impressed. It literally like grinning ear to ear. And when he went as far as to say, and I'll never forget it, that it was the best of guitars that ever sounded. And that really blew my mind because it's Boston, you know, yeah. guitar band. I'm like, sure. okay, what? Uh, and then I sang and, and it was just wild how everything just started falling into place. And I went and did the show and sang and the fans, it was sold out show in Boston on the Harbor. Uh, the fans were so beautiful and so acceptive. And right after the show, what was supposed to be their last show, I guess, cause this went so well, it was so magnetic. Tom came backstage and said, we want to do more. We want to do a tour and we want you to be a part of it. Join the band. And, and that was it. Well, I have to ask how how a vocalist like yourself, and you're a wonderful vocalist, and I think nobody would disagree with that, but how, how does it make a guy like you feel when you know that you're fixing to climb up on a stage and sing with people like Sammy Hagar and Mickey Thomas from Starship and, and Ann Wilson? Like, these are, these are some of the best singers in the business. Is there any kind of... I don't know, maybe it's a silly question. Is there any intimidation factor for a guy like you, or is it just, it, it is what it is kind of thing? 
No, there definitely is. But it wasn't from that perspective. It wasn't, I wasn't thinking about Mickey Thomas and Sammy Hagar and any of those singers. And, and I say that with all due respect. Mickey Thomas is one of the, you know, still sounds like he did. Oh my gosh. Phenomenal. Uh, Ann Wilson, come on, you know. But it was more the fact that I was getting ready to go out and sing Boston songs. And not just Boston songs, but the hardest rock song in the history of rock music, in my opinion, which is more than a few. Uh, there's not a more difficult song to sing. I, I, if there is, tell me, because mm-hmm. I, I need to know. Uh, and, and in front of Boston fans, coming off the heels of Brad Dell passing, that's what made me nervous. I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> I, guess, I guess so. I mean, I think I had to change my underwear after that show. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I was nervous as all get out. But once I went out there and did it, we had some technical issues right before I was supposed to go out. And, and my guitar tech was there and he fixed it. Um, or no, not my guitar tech. Another guitar deck. Sorry, I'm thinking of something else. Uh, they fixed the issue. I went out and played, and right after that first song and the crowd erupted, that's when my nerves passed, you know, and I was able to get through it and just enjoy the show, man. And, and I realized, like, this isn't about me. This isn't about anybody else. This is about Brad. Yeah. This is about Absolutely. Brad's life and celebrating his life and celebrating who he was and then once I did that and thought that way, it was just such a magical night. It was unbelievable. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a testament to, you know, kind of to what people think of your, your vocal prowess. I mean, you replaced, I shouldn't say that. Let me rephrase. You were doing a tribute to Brad Delp. I mean, these were humongous shoes to fill. Like, like you mentioned, Brad Delp, I mean, if somebody said, I, I've had people come up to my shows at, as a solo guy, acoustic solo guy, and say, hey, do you do anything by Boston? And I look at them probably like they've got eight eyes on their head. And I'm like, did you really seriously just ask me that? Like, I, I couldn't do that even if, if, if I had help doing that. <laughs> There's no way. Uh, oh, man. The guy's, the guy's on another planet in and of himself as well. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's so interesting because I just, it, it was, it was an interesting time because, you know, my wife was sick at the time and I was her caretaker and here I am getting ready to go on a Boston tour. So I, I was opposed to it and I didn't feel like it was something I was physically or mentally able to do. And she wanted me to do it and really pushed for that. And we figure out a way to make it happen. And I went on tour. We did, I think it was 56 shows. It was a, it was a big tour. Mm-hmm. Six was the opener, uh, opening band for most of the tour. And um, it was interesting because Tom, who is uh, an extreme perfectionist, I am too, but I think he may have me be. <laughs> um he's an extreme perfectionist and and knows what he wants and knows how to achieve that. I, I thought, how am I going to sing when I don't sound anything like Brad Delp? I mean, I can, you know, I might have some of the range and I can hit some of the notes, but I don't sound like Brad. Sure. 
I don't have the same tonality. Uh, so how's this going to work? And um, I went out and sang the songs like Michael Sweet. And there was another guy there, another singer. We co-sang. So I, I would sing one song, and then he would sing Smoking. And then I would sing this a long time, and he would sing, you know. So we switched off. Guy by the name of Brad, excuse me, guy by the name of uh, Tommy DiCarlo. And he's still with the band now. And Tommy has a little bit of the tonality that Brad had. So he sounded more like Brad, and I sounded more like Michael Sweet. But I would sing a song, and, and Tom would stop and say, Tommy, you got to go home and listen to the album. You know, you're not singing that right. And then I, I wasn't singing it right at all. And I'd say, what about me, man? What do you want me to do? And Tom would say, you're fine. Sounds great. Just keep singing like you're singing. And it became this, it started to feel kind of weird and a little uncomfortable for me because I was getting away with, you know. Murder, right? (laughs) Well, it it felt like that. Yeah. I was just singing like me, Michael Sweet, and Tom liked it. And maybe the only thing I could think of is maybe because I was an established artist, he just wanted me to be who I was, you know? Yeah, he I had no know. expectations of you, maybe, right? I don't know. He knew you weren't going to come in and sound like Brad Delp, probably. I guess. I guess so. And, yeah, and he knew. He went out and bought a few of our albums and listened to them and said he loved them and was really impressed with the songwriting, the guitars, the vocals. I mean, we talked. We became really good friends during that time. Uh, and it was really interesting how that worked out. But man, I got I got to go out there and just do my thing. I was running all over the stage. Nobody else was. Everyone was standing in one place. And I'd say to Tom, "Man, am I moving too much?" And he'd say, "Oh no, no, no. Keep moving. Keep moving." He just let me do my thing. Yeah. And it was really cool. Well, what a, what a cool thing. I mean, you spent f- what about four years with Boston, I think, and what a mystical band. You know, they they didn't have a lot of material out. You know, they weren't like a yeah. lot of bands that had 15, 20 records out. You know, they went years and years and years in between records yeah. and so they almost became this this mystical band like when are these guys going to put out their next record in 10 years and 13 years you never knew when they were coming, but the stuff that they did do, and and somebody will educate me if I'm wrong. What did they do? Like four records, five records. I mean, it was a, it was a small amount, I right? I believe a few more than that. Okay, I'm not exactly sure myself, but I want to say maybe it, it might even be six or seven okay. albums. Uh, they released one on Frontiers uh, a while back. Okay. Maybe, maybe five, six, seven years ago. I'm not sure. I've lost track of time. I think it was called Love, Life, Hope. Okay. And uh, that was their last album that they put out. But yeah, they haven't released very many albums. Uh, being from 1976. Yeah, I was going to say they go way back uh, to the mid 70s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's going way back. So you would think they would have, you know, 20 albums. 15, 20, yes. Yeah. 15, 20 albums. Absolutely. Yeah, no. They have certainly uh, half half that, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, and everybody knows the first the first Boston album is the one that set the standard. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. How do you how do you even follow such an album? I mean, that debut <laughs> album stayed on the charts for how many years? Like it was on the chart right. for years. Like some 
some hit the charts and stay on it for maybe a couple of weeks, two or three, four weeks. I mean, this one was years, right? It's like one of the greatest selling yeah. debut albums of all time. Um, I think it is. I think it's like the greatest selling like rock debut yeah, album. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jackson is surpassed and, you know, a few others. Sure. I, I think Mariah Carey. I'm not sure who else, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of rock, that's it. Yeah. That's, that's the one. Well, congratulations on that gig. I mean, that that never hurts to have that on your resume, right? Like I was the singer of Boston. I mean, I could think of worse things to put on a resume, right? Well, I tell you, and I again, I always say with all due respect, but I mean that when I say it. With all due respect, it, it I don't know if it necessarily hurts, but I don't know how much it really helps either. I mean, I, I you know, I... I'm, I'm trying to find the right words here because I don't want to be disrespectful, but I just, I don't know that it's brought anything uh, extra my way, you know? And, and yeah. I say that because Striper's my baby. Absolutely. You know? Striper, Striper's the band that I've been involved with from day one and I'm still involved with. And that's why I left Boston. Uh, there were some other things going on uh, that I was getting wind of and whatnot. And I just felt like, you know, I really need to focus on Striper because it's, it's the band that I started with my brother. Uh, you know, it's the band that we're going to, we're going to keep touring with and, and recording with. And I, I need to really just set my sights on that. And I felt like if I had remained in Boston and continued on with them, that I wouldn't be able to do that. Absolutely. You know? Because they toured, they toured quite a few times since then. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, let me shift gears with you real quick. I wanted to talk a little bit about, and high level, about um, equipment and tone. Uh, I think that you're using a, is it the ISP Theta Box still, the signature edition? Are you still with that product or using that product? I am. It's a Michael Sweet Signature Theta Pro, uh, and it's... uh, it's got my thing, my presets in it. There's a pre-EQ circuit on that that allows me to dial in my parametric pre-EQ tone. You know, so it's just adding a lot of that 7, uh, 750 to 800 uh, at a somewhat narrow range, and it gives it that half-cocked wah kind of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, chuggy, chunky thing. And... I love the people. I love Buck and Shelly, and they've really taken care of me, man. And, and they did fairly well with that. Okay. And then they released a smaller version, and, and that's what I'm using live right now. If you come see us live and you watch videos, we just did the Jericho Cruise. If you go watch the live videos of that, you hear my tone. That's what that is. It, it's come, I'm coming out stereo into the house direct. And then I'm going, I'm feeding two uh, Marshall or base of boogie heads, whichever, whichever they have that sound good. Okay. Now this is a digital device and you've, I think you've said in the past or I've heard it somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, it almost sounds analog. Explain this to the casual listener. What does that mean when you go from a digital device and it comes out sounding analog that that sounds counterintuitive or counterproductive. Like why would I go yeah. buy a digital thing to sound like something completely opposite? Right. Right. Well, the thing about digital is it's, it's more easily programmable. It's, it's a lot uh, more convenient 
uh, more consistent, um, you know, analog stuff isn't as consistent. You know, okay. when you're dealing with tubes and circuits and whatnot, things can go wrong and things don't work properly or they, uh, one thing gets turned and it sounds totally different. Or uh, with the digital box, you, you get your tone and you save it, and that's it. You plug in every night and it sounds the same every night. Yes. Um, and so that's the, that's the greatness about that. And what I meant by the digital sounding more analog thing is a lot of the digital uh, uh, all-in-one boxes. You know, you've got Kemper, uh, you've got uh, Fractal. Yeah, those are the higher end. And then you've got all the, the Line 6 stuff that goes from high end down to low end and, and price-wise. And then you've got uh, the uh, Headrush stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got everybody coming out sure. with all these digital all in one, all your effects, all your amps, everything, your cabs in one box, right? Um, the problem with most of them is there's a big difference from plugging into one of those into an amp and then just plugging into an amp. My ears, there's a night and day difference. Absolutely. And it's something to do with the air you're moving, with the breakup, with the the natural sound of that tube circuit in the head, an old Marshall versus a, an old Marshall being modeled in a digital box, you know. And they, some people would say, oh, man, that sounds just like a Marshall. Well, okay, really? Well, go get a real old Marshall and then, and then plug into that and then A, B the two, and then you tell me if it sounds just like it. Sure. No, it doesn't at all. Yeah. At all. You can maybe sit there for 24 hours or 48 hours and tweak it with a bunch of added stuff to try to make it sound more like it. But it just, my point is it's, it's not that beast. And that's what I meant by with my box in particular to my ears. Okay. Maybe to other people's ears, it doesn't sound that way, but to my ears, when I plug into a line six, and I try to get that analog sound that Striper had back in the 80s, and then I plug in the my box and I try to get it, my box sounds more like the analog, warm, okay. fat, moving air kind of, kind of tone. I'll follow you. I'm, I'm able to play better because of that, and I feel it better as it's the way it responds okay. to, on stage through that the makes cabinets sense. and yep. out in the front of the house. And, you know, it just... Line six is the biggest selling, you know, modeler out there. I've Go got figure. I've got one sitting right right there. As a matter of fact, right? Yeah. There you go. And I've got I've got one. I've got two. I've got the little tiny one, and I've got the the older big one. Sure. I get it. Yeah. There's a reason why they're the biggest selling modeler out there. Yep. And it's not about dogging line six. It's just that me personally. I can't get the tone I want to feel and hear out of the line six. That's just for live. I'm talking about live. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, your ears are not the same as my ears. Like I can hear something. I hear something totally different. If I'm listening to you play, sit there and noodle on the guitar, you hear it one way and I hear it a different way, even though it's the same exact thing that we're listening to. Right. So, so it it has to be, it has to be pleasing to your ears first, right? It has to satisfy Michael before it satisfies the world. 
right? Exactly. And if you're happy, and it's got to, it's got to feel right. It, it's the ears, but then also the feel of it. You know how Absolutely. it feels against your legs that the speakers moving, the air moving your legs. You know all that stuff. Yep. And it, it, again, line six. What I find it excels in that. What I do like it, the uh, environment I like it in, is in the studio. You know, it, that's a whole different thing. I'm I'm just primarily talking about live, live, live. Yes. When you're cranking it through an amp, yep. you know, there's just something there. And that goes for fractal. I have a fractal I've toured with. It, it, same thing. I've always gone back to my box because it just responds better in a live environment to, to me. Yeah. Is it my understanding that that unit will actually tune you down a half step or whole step without you physically having to tune the guitar down? Yeah, you can, it's got the uh, uh, polyphonic, uh, it's got the pitch shifting, so you can do, it's not a smart pitch shifter, but you can drop down or go up. Okay. And, and, and so many steps before, or, or half steps, intervals, before it starts to sound unnatural. You that know, if you sense. drop it down two and a half or three steps, it's going <laughs> to start to sound Sure. Weird. Then you're going to have intonation probably issues, you know, where, where the guitar doesn't quite stay in tune. Because of well, I, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just it just sounds weird. It doesn't yeah. sound natural. It sounds very strange. But I mean, it works really well. The, the biggest thing about any type of pitch effect that you always want to make sure is the best it can be is the latency. You yes. know, uh, a lot of times when you drop stuff down with a lot of these units out there, you get a latency. So it's a lag and mm-hmm. you hit the cord and it comes out just a little late, you know, yes. and th- that you can't have that going on. No. At all. Now, is that pedal is is it truly is it truly an all in one where you don't have any other pedals hooked up with that? Like you literally take one box on stage and drop it or do you actually have a couple of you know, additional pedals that, that give you a different sound, right? I don't want to steal your secret sauce or anything. Right. But I'm just curious if, if, if you were truly able to pull all of the Michael sweet striper sound through that one unit, right? Yeah. Through that one unit. The only thing that I have, I have a wireless, the sure wireless, and then I have a radial R-A-D-I-A-L box. And it's a basically like a stereo, DI that I go through because it's got the one thing my box doesn't have is ground lifts and or phase reverse switches. So I got this radial box. So if there's ever phase issues or ground issues, I can lift the ground and reverse the phase. So that's the one thing that my box doesn't have. And, uh, you know, I wish that it had that, and they could obviously build one that has that. Uh, but i got to be honest, I've never really come across that problem. Yeah. Uh, usually there's not any noise. There's no hum or, uh, or yes. phase issues at all. You, I, I walk into a venue, and it's always pretty cold. And occasionally you'll have some venue that has the worst power, and everybody's buzzing, bass, mm-hmm. everybody. And you can't get rid of it. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. that, that happens on rare occasion. So j- jumping over to the guitar real quick. Now, I know that you've been associated over the years with PRS and Washburn. 
Is Sully the go-to instrument for you these days, or do I have my facts all non-factual? Like, are you still playing Washburn or PRS, or is it all Sully? Or talk talk to me and the listeners a little bit about guitar of choice or what you're playing. Well, people people always uh, I notice online when I switch to a different company, they think, "Oh man, you know, can't you stay with one company?" Or you know, I thought. Washburns were the best guitars, and well, they were. But you know, things happen. And I'll tell you, I know I don't want to eat up all the time here, but just to give you an example, uh, I called PRS for years and spoke to a guy who used to work there. I don't believe he still works there by the name of Wynn, and uh, asked him if I could become an artist. And it wasn't about getting free guitars. It's just because I love Paul Reed Smith guitars. And I had two built for me. And I got 50% off, but I paid for them. You know, I had two built. I have them to this day. And uh, I said, when, dude, I'd love to be an artist, man. Ah, Michael, you know, sorry. All we can do is, you know, give you some pickups and give you a discount on the guitars. But, you know, hey, who knows? Maybe someday I call him again. Six months later or a year later, hey, buddy, dude, oh, all I'm playing are these PRSs. That's it exclusively. I love to become an artist. Well, you know the drill, man. Sorry. So when I got the Boston gig, I called him up and I said, hey, man, it's Michael Sweet again. Oh, hey, what's going on, Michael? Before you ask, you know the drill. It's nothing we could do, man. I mean, you know, and I said, well, I got a new gig. He goes, what do you mean you got a new gig? I said, I got a new gig. He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm going to be touring with Boston, 56 cities, headlining. And he goes, Boston. I said, Boston. Yeah, Boston. <laughs> and he goes, what do you need? That was it. He sent me seven guitars. Just like that. So... I kind of, as much as I love Paul Reed Smith guitars, it... it, it Soured you it probably, little, right? It left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. I Absolutely. just felt like, okay, um, hmm. It didn't feel about the relationship to me. It was yes. more about like just being seen. Um well, it, ca- it, it, it kind of goes back. It kind of goes back to that resume thing, right? I mean, that's just a prime example of that. When you 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 had nothing, and then you mentioned Boston, and now all of a sudden, oh, oh, wait, I that mean, yeah, it's silly. Well, yeah, it's a little so, silly, right? It is. It is. But it, but that's what that's how that's the reality. Of it. Okay. That's why when you see bands who are breaking and they're young and they don't have anything, and then all of a sudden they're endorsed by everybody. Yeah because they're opening for this band or that band, you know? And it's like, I get it, but at the same time, I don't. And the reason why is because there's something to be said for the old dogs like me who have stuck by those companies for whether it's, you know, you Ooh, name the flavor it, of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's what happened with PRS. And I, when I left Boston, I moved on from PRS because when I left Boston, what do you think happened? Well, the guitar stopped coming for sure, right? Yeah. <laughs> Michael had to go well, buy his own guitars again. Well, That's it's interesting that you guessed that. Yeah. Uh, and then I wound up eventually, I was very hesitant to sign a deal with any other company. And uh, I was with Carvin 
And I, uh, they made me a beautiful guitar, and I performed at uh, in Anaheim, a house of blues. And I forgot to mention Carbon. It was during NAMP, the NAMP okay, show. Yep. I forgot mm-hmm. to mention Carbon from the stage. They were there seeing us that night. I was just caught up in the moment. And the next morning, I heard stories about someone from Carbon being upset and livid. There was some stand-up of me, and I guess they broke that into pieces, and they were just livid with me because I forgot to mention them. Wow. I wrote an email apologizing. My days with Carvin were done from that moment on. Um, so this, I'm just giving you stories so people know, like, why does he change companies? Sure. So much? And then I wound up eventually doing a deal with Washburn, and they were – amazing and the guy there that took care of me became a dear friend wonderful guy uh gil saucy uh, or saucy might be saucy uh gosh just took care of me made me my own personal guitar they released it it did really well made me another model another model another model they made me an acoustic guitar and i just felt like wow i finally have a family here and i proudly played washburn and then he left the company and I knew when he told me he was leaving that that was the end of it. Because the other people that I dealt with there just, you know, they, it wasn't easy to deal with. Sure. Not that they were bad people, but just it wasn't easy to get things done. Yeah, sure. Gil, Gil always got things done. So when he left, sure enough, that was it. And uh, I parted ways with Washburn. So then I thought, okay, look, it's not about finding a big company for me. It's really not. Because I was talking to some big companies who wanted to bring me on board. And I could have done that. But I've been there and done that. Uh, And I wanted to find someone that just is a good person and respectable. Sure. And who can build the best quality guitar out there. And that's Sully. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played a Sully or if you've ever met Sully, but... You know, I've never met him in person, but I've, I've talked with him and we text and email all the time. And he's just an incredible guy who builds, like, killer guitars. And, you know, it's just amazing. And I proudly play the Sully, I tell you. And he, I got a new, another one coming, uh, a signature model. And he's doing some imports that are coming out. He sold out on the pre-orders, Michael Sweet Imports. And that's why I'm playing Sully's right now. Okay. It's not about being a gear whore or me just jumping from company to company. And a lot of people just assume that. Sure. It's, it's really not. <laughs> right. Well, where did you even hear from? Did, did Sully come up at, at NAM? Where did you hear about them? Because I, to be honest, like in no disrespect to them, I before you and before doing the show, I haven't heard of them. And I've heard of a lot of guitars, but again, I don't, I can't know all of the guitars out there. Right. I get it. I know it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, hopefully someday soon, Sully will be uh, a, a household name. name. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that happens because he deserves that because his guitars are, trust me, they're, they're killer. Uh, they're every bit as good as the old Jackson guitars. Yeah. The original Jacksons, they're, they're, they're right up there. And oddly enough, I know he really respects the Grover. They actually released the guitar together. And I think 
Grover's taught Sully a lot. And uh, he builds guitars like the old Jacksons. That's why I love him so much. Where's that? I, I just learned about him because I started researching. I talked to a good friend of mine, Adam uh, Reaver uh, at uh, FU Tone, and he highly recommended Sully. And I started looking at all the models and stuff, and I was, I was blown away. If you go to the website and you look at all their guitars, it's like, man, he makes some killer stuff. Wow. It's interesting that you say that about the guitars. Um, I had Randy Jackson, um, not the American Idol Randy Jackson, but Randy Jackson, the lead singer of the rock band Zebra, on yes. my show. And he plays, he's, he's exclusive Michael Kelly now. And I had never, before him, I had never heard of Michael Kelly either, right? So it's like, again, it's kind of along the same lines as, as you, where you, you're, you guys, you, both you and Randy are introducing a little bit more of an unknown guitar. I mean, the household names are, of course, Fender and Taylor and Martin and, you, you know, uh, whatever, but Sully and Michael Kelly are just they're not household names yet and I, I think by having guys like yourself world-renowned artists as as spokespeople for their instruments that that will help grow their brand tremendously i would think oh, or hope yeah, right sure. and i'm sure you would hope the same thing for for sully too right absolutely and i tell you man i i wouldn't play it if i didn't feel it was the best guitar to play oh for sure and I've gotten I've gotten guitars from other companies. There were other companies that built me guitars, and uh, and it, it just didn't feel right. Yep. So I didn't play them. I, I didn't do, wind up going with that company. Yeah. And because it just wasn't right. But you know, it's got to be right. It's got to feel right. For it's got to sure. play right. It's got to look right. And if it doesn't, I'm not going to do it. Absolutely. I, I mean, I have a bunch of guitars. I'll just play my old Jackson. <laughs> you know? I mean. Well, uh, and you, yeah, and I think you and I both are in a position that we could just go buy our own guitars if we wanted to buy our own guitars, right? It's not a, exactly. it's not even a money thing. It's it's really, yeah. uh, you know, about just having the right instrument in your hand. the The carpenter has to have the right hammer. It's not any yeah, old hammer. Sure. It's the right hammer. And, right. and uh, they said that about what the 19 air, uh, 1980 miracle on ice team, because I spent a lot of years in professional hockey myself. So I always go back to that analogy. You know, Herb Brooks said, I don't want the best players. I want the right players. And those, exactly. those right players won a gold medal, right? In Lake so Placid. True. So, I mean. So true. It's, it's so true. But I mean, there are those people that just assume that, Oh, you're doing it just, you know, because they're giving you guitars or you're doing it because they're paying you or they're, and it's like, it's some of, sometimes it's pretty comical to read some of the comments. Sure. Well, these are, these are people, and I know you're a nice guy and, and you, you're, you're a little bit more public and don't say ugly things about people, but these are, a lot of times these are, are armchair critics that know nothing about the business. They just have opinions, right? And just, you yeah. just have to yeah. let them talk I, yeah. I guess is the the best so, way to put yeah. it do you do you feel like um over the years that you've continued to grow as a guitarist do you feel like you're getting better do you feel like do you try to get better are you in the same place are you stuck like I think we all go through these these m mindsets as guitarists where we just like 
gosh, I've been playing the same stuff for the last two years and I don't, I, I can't break, you know what I'm saying? Like we're just, yeah. it gets stagnant and you're like, what in the hell is going on yeah. here? Do you, do you as a, at the level that you're at, do you feel the same way sometime? Like, am I getting better? Am I actually better? Like. I do. I do feel that. I mean, I think that I've gotten better in terms of crafting a solo and writing songs and writing solos for those songs. I think I've gotten better at that. What I haven't gotten better at is uh, delivering the performance. So back in the day, I played a lot more. My fingers were more fluid and agile, and I could deliver the performance in one take. Okay. One take, man. Boom. There it is. Well, what do you think? You know, Michael Wagner. Wow. Perfect. Great. And now I got to warm up before that <laughs> solo for half an hour and then go in the room and, and maybe get it, you know, three or four or five takes. It's a lot more work to get my fingers to do. Now, granted, maybe if I played more, if I played every day, I got to admit, I don't play every day. Right. I, it's not that I'm not doing other things. I'm doing other things, but I don't have time to play guitar like I did when I was 16 years old. I'm the same I way. Don't. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I played upwards to 130 shows a year at one time, and I never played every day. I mean, you just, you can't play yeah. every day. I mean, there just has to be, whether it's guitar playing or ditch digging, you need a break from that from time to time. You know what I mean? You got to break the monotony at, at some point in time. So I know, but these guys, these guys that are killing it, literally that are just like mind blowing on YouTube. I just played a, a gig with, with one of them. They, they play every day. <laughs> Like from morning to 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 the, from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. Yeah, yeah. And and great. I, I used to be like that. Yeah. But you know, and these guys maybe they're not married or they don't have kids or they don't have you know who knows. Yeah. Whatever. But man, I, I those days are gone for me. Yeah. Uh, so because of that, it takes a lot more work. That's all. Absolutely. Well, I just went to a Tommy Emanuel concert not too long ago. Uh, and, uh, and you know, he said the exact same thing. Like, I used to just sit and play for 15, 20 hours a day. And I'm like, yeah. my gosh. Well, it shows in his playing, right? Like, there there is an outcome that we can all see from Tommy sitting and playing 15 hours a day. Um, yeah, the guy is no so slouch on the, on the guitarists, on the guitar. So, yeah, he's insane. He's, he's one of the most gifted players on the planet. Yeah. And never be another one like him, you know. But, yeah, I mean. And it's, that's not just from the 15 or 20 hours of playing, but that's just an internal gift, too, you know? Yeah. Uh, God made it, it spent a little bit more time on him. <laughs> he didn't cheat him out of talent, for sure. No. Uh, Tommy no. took all my talent, I think, is what the problem was. Man. Well, I have to mention real quick that back in eight, 1989, I uh, – I had proposed and, and married my wife still to this day. And uh, I had um, a, a girl by the name of Lori Jones fly in to play piano and sing at our wedding. 
and it was your song together as one that was played oh, wow. at, at our wedding. So I, I, I wanted to let you know that I thought that was pretty cool that Dude, that's I was, awesome. I was getting to talk to, uh, the guy that wrote the song that we had played at our wedding, what seems like 173 years ago, but uh, yeah, 1989. So I'm just trying to get my, not that I need it, but I'm trying to get my light. I'm sorry. Oh, you're good. There it is. That's, it's really weird. It just shut off. There we go. Okay. We're good. Yep. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. So one of our songs for your wedding. Yep. Wow. I think, I think the Lord's prayer was done. And then together as one were, were the, two live songs that we had played at the wedding. So I thought you'd appreciate that. That is awesome. My light just went out. I don't know what's up with it. So I'm just going to be a little darker for you. Yeah, no, you're, you're good. Um, in your, in your own words, why do you feel there's been, I don't, I need to figure out how to phrase the question because I don't want it to sound negative. Um, yeah. Let me just ask it, and then if if we need to rephrase it or reword it, we can we can certainly do that. Um, in your own words, why do you feel over the years there's there's been so many critics of Striper and their music, or do you feel like there's been a lot of critics? I, I feel, you know, just the outsider looking in, like there was. You guys were always under, you seem to always be under a microscope, like different from others. Do you think it was because of like you were trying to intermingle positive into hard rock fashion and the the true hardcore metal people just, no, you don't, you don't sing about those things and metal. Do you think that that's what it was? Or talk to me a little bit about your thoughts around the critics and why they might have yeah. been a little harder on Striper than maybe other bands? That's a good question. I think it's just a natural thing. Whenever you uh, stand for God, uh, whether it's on stage or in the workplace or anywhere, you're going to instantly have some tough critics because let's just face it. God's not, the most popular, you know, subject in this world. He's just not. And especially in metal. Uh, and a lot of people just say it's, a, you know, it's something that you can't mix. And it's, it, I find that very interesting because those same people that say that are okay with mixing Satan with metal. Sure. So that's okay. Uh, for some reason. But yet you can't mix the one that created Satan, the devil. Sure. Lucifer. Yes. He was an archangel, if you believe that. Sure. Which which I do. But, I mean, it's just very interesting because it's okay to mix that side of religion with metal, but you can't mix the other side of religion. <laughs> it's like dual standards. Yeah. It's like, you gotta, it, it's, it's just, it, it's silliness. And that's the mentality. Of it. Yeah. I don't you even, know? I don't even know why I wanted to ask that question. I just, I guess it's always kind of burned in the back of my head. Like, you know, you, you read the trade rags or, or whatever. And it's yeah, like, why, are, why are people so, I mean, these are talented these guys are overly talented musicians that write yeah. amazing songs. And why are you guys 
so hard on you know you know what I'm I'm saying I just always seem to got that feeling a little bit like you guys were always under the microscope Um, and again I I say that from my own as the outsider looking in or from my point of view right maybe again maybe that wasn't ever the case and I was dreaming and woke up from a dream but uh, no it's it's hard dude it's it, it, we we get a lot of flack to this day, and we always will till we're gone, till we're dead and gone. And uh, it's it's the God thing. I mean, it, it, who would you say is like the most respected metal singer out there? Well, I, I think if if uh, you know alive or dead, I think Dio was always up there, dead. right? All right, Dio, Dio. If Dio had come on the scene when he you know, joined Rainbow, and that was really his first on a big stage, sure. like, you know, taking the world by, you know. If he had come out at that time and was singing about Jesus and talking about Jesus, what do you think would have happened? I don't think that they he would have had near the star power that it, that he does no. as as singing about, you know, heaven and hell or what, you know, whatever the song of the day is for, for, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have, he would have been laughed at and mocked. Uh, and he'd be looked at as a completely different person. Yeah. Even though he's probably one of, if not the greatest metal singer of all time, absolutely he'd be looked at completely different if he had stood for Christ. And that proved that, and, and if anyone argues with that, uh, okay, I, I, you're just not willing to see see it for what it is because that's just the truth of the matter. And I think I think if Deal were here himself, he'd probably agree with that. I agree. Uh, but you know, that's that's what it is. It's because we sing about Christ, and people are just immediately drawn to belittling that. Not all people. Not all people. I mean, we've got a lot of fans out there, a lot of people that support us. But, you know, that side, the majority of that side. Correct. It's just a natural thing. Oh, God. Yeah. These guys suck. Listen, yeah. they're singing about, oh, my God. Oh, geez. Well, I think you it know? just goes to the point that um, people want to put you in a box. They want yeah. to say that Dio sings about these things, and if Dio does something outside of that box and sings about Christ, then he's a sellout and I don't want to listen to him for the same reason that they would probably say Michael Sweet is a Christian artist. And if he were to go up and sing Iron Maiden songs, you'd either get laughed out of the place. Like you're the same singer, you have the same vocal ability, but you change the subject and you're not the same guy anymore. It's just the, it's, it's a thought process. That's weird. And and then at the same time, they'll sit with no problem whatsoever and listen to the most satanic lyric, uh, from whatever band you want to pick from, you know, whether it's a Slayer lyric or, you know, whatever, pick, pick one. Sure. Uh, and they'll listen to that. And that's perfectly fine. That's cool. That's right. That's acceptable in the metal world. But you start singing about Christ, man. It's just it's not acceptable. There's this. Again, that's a, that's the way of the world. It's, yeah. I mean, this is why Christ was crucified. I mean, it's, it's the same thing because yeah. he proclaimed to be Christ, and what? Oh my! And they killed him. You know, yeah. they crucified him. So 
it, it's just the, the world is no different now no. than it was then. I think there's a cool, no. a cool factor with, with the dark side of metal that doesn't carry the same cool factor over to heavy Christian, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah we could go on for days like that. Yeah, but, uh, and we were, here's the thing about Striker, real quick, I'll leave it at this. We, we've learned and uh, we have tough skin, you know, believe it or not. Some might not agree with that, but we've, you wouldn't even believe what we've heard over the years and what we've seen and, and what has been said to us and done to us. And we just, we grin and bear it. We, we, you know, Striper keeps coming back. We're not going anywhere. We're still here. And that's the beautiful thing about it is you can't, the, the people that hate us can't stop us. Yes. And maybe that's why they hate us even more. Well, at the end of the day, you have to do what you love. And uh, there's an old adage that you, you, you can't please everyone. And as yeah, much as perfectionists right. like you and I, we want to go to our shows and we want everybody to walk out the doors loving what we did that night. The <laughs> yeah, fact true. of the matter, the sad reality or the fact of the matter is there's going to be one that yeah. didn't give a damn about gotcha. a what we were playing and we'll never think that we sounded good. And for those, right, you yeah. have to discard that one and 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 cater to the masses i think is is the point i'm trying to make you you're never going to please every you're not going to have everybody's not going to be a striper fan everybody's not going to be a randy holsey fan so we just try to please who we can and if we touch you know a hundred people in the room with our music that's a hundred more than we had the day before i think that that's almost how you have to look at that for sure there's no doubt about it. And, and that's just the name of the game. And, you know, you got to, that's why you got to just be able to, you got to toughen up and just keep doing what you're there and called to do. Absolutely. And, uh, with a smile on your face, because you're, you're doing, you're doing, yes. you're following your dreams. And that's all that matters. I agree. What is coming up from the Michael Sweet camp and the Striper camp that you can share with the listeners? New tour, new music. What can you talk about there? Well, we've got uh, a new album we're going to start work on in January, uh, recording anyway. I'm, I'm working on it now, writing it. Um, we uh, met our goal with a Kickstarter campaign for a documentary. And our goal was 100000 We wound up raising incredible, like two, just over $220,000. And um, we're going to make a killer documentary over the next two years. It's going to take a while. Uh, we're going to be touring next year. We, we just started announcing tour dates. We've got many more to announce. And uh, I've got a couple projects I'm working on. This uh, band called, uh, I can't even really say the name of the That's band fine. yet. Uh, but I got a, a band that I'm working with, Joel Holkstra, um, Nathan James on vocals, uh, Tommy Aldrich on drums, and... Uh, uh, Marco uh, Mendoza on bass, and we're doing. We did an album together, and that's cool. That's that's going to be coming out this year. Um, I got another Sweet Lynch album I'm working on. That that's going to come out uh, probably probably next year, early next year. And I'm just staying busy, man. As as, as busy and active as I can, and, and trying to get better with my eye, and got a lot more to do. Absolutely. 
You're making a fashion statement there for sure. You know, you might you might continue wearing that after all this is healed. You know, like it's the I new know, look. Man. You know, you're 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 rocking it. Yeah, I might have to go buy me one of those and see if I can get some attention too. Uh, I, I would probably be a little. I wouldn't say disrespectful is the the right word, but insensitive maybe is the right word. If I didn't ask how Oz is doing these days. Um, and and you Oz don't need to elaborate good. on anything. Just he's I just I was just great. curious. Okay, cool. Oz is doing great, man. He, he's been through two surgeries and he's doing great. And they came right out of those surgeries like they never even happened. So it's really great. That's Incredible. awesome. That's very awesome. And where can the listeners find you and the band on social media these days? Oh man, well uh, Michael Sweet and Striper are on Instagram. Uh, we are on Twitter and we are on Facebook. Okay. We're all over the internet. I, the only thing I'm not doing right now and I, I have no uh, plans to do it is TikTok. <laughs> yeah. do, do you ever think about like, I'm too old for t- <laughs> I, I love watching the, I have to admit, Michael, I, I love, I get hooked on watching the videos. I just don't know if I'm the age that needs to go making the videos. That's what, that's where I am with the whole tick. I have the TikTok channel, but I don't think I've posted one video. I just, I, I love watching them, but I don't, I just can't get my, I, I don't know, man. You know, totally I think I have to tap on that one. So, um, well, I think, uh, to help you out there, um, the listeners can, find your information specifically on the web at michaelsweet.com and striper.com. And I think that that's where they will find uh, your merch pages where they can buy music and merchandise, check the, the tour calendar and that type of thing. That's a good one-stop shop as well for those that are still, you know, that love the website. I still have a website too, you know, the randyholsey.com. I know it sounds archaic, like who looks at websites anymore, but you know, it's still, it's still a great tool. It's a great tool to use. So, you know, I would encourage you guys to go out and check out the sites and buy up some of that merch, buy some of the, the new material, the old material. Um, I'm sure the band and Michael would appreciate that. Michael, I want to thank you for, being a gracious guest and joining the show. I, I wish you guys continued success. Um, you with your solo efforts and everything related to upcoming endeavors in and around the band Striper. I asked the listeners to absolutely. I asked the listeners to follow Michael on social media and to also get out and, uh, you know, check out those websites again and, and uh, help support the band. Also, uh, I remind you to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can always find the show at Facebook um, at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast, on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio, Twitter at Backstage Pass PC, and on the website at BackstagePassRadio.com. You guys make sure to take care of yourselves and each other, and we'll catch you right back here on the next episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio.